tossing and turning all night like a salad, it's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus. A probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker, and I thought, if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate, so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. I'm Jill, and I'm a sober scientist who talks about the science and psychology of addiction. There are a lot of things that influence developing an addiction, and none of them are that we're weak-willed losers. In the Sober Powered Podcast, you'll learn how and why addiction develops, how alcohol changes the brain to keep us drinking, and most importantly, that you're not alone. The things you experience are experienced by many of us. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about how trauma increases the risk of developing an addiction. 
I'll discuss an interesting study from 2021 that looked at how trauma impacts the amount of pleasure that a person will feel from drugs. You'll learn how childhood trauma changes the way animals and humans experience pain. Another reason why we can never become take it or leave it drinkers or drug users and why science thinks trauma makes us more vulnerable to addiction. And you may notice that my voice is a little bit off today, so please bear with me. I've been sick with the flu for about a week. I was trying to put off recording this as long as possible to let my voice recover, but it is just not. So let's dig in anyways. Early childhood trauma is strongly associated with developing addiction issues later in life because of poor emotional regulation and using substances to reduce symptoms of hyperarousal, which is a symptom of PTSD when the body goes into high alert like it's reacting to real danger. Childhood trauma may also change the way that our reward system works. The word endorphin comes from endogenous morphine. So endogenous means that it comes from inside of the body. And endorphins are opioids that are naturally produced in the body. So they block the perception of pain and cause pleasure. Opioid receptors are places in the body where endorphins can bind to. So you can think of it like the receptor receives something. So there are receptors for things like insulin, endorphins, and neurotransmitters. So receptors decorate the surface of a cell, and when something binds to them, they transmit a message into the cell. So for endorphins, if an endorphin binds to an opioid receptor, then the receptor will transmit a message of alleviating pain or causing pleasure. Trauma can change our sensitivity to pain and pleasure by changing the way that this system functions. And for someone without trauma, abusing drugs and alcohol causes changes to happen with this system too. And the brain will begin to release more endorphins than necessary, causing even more pleasure. So these changes to the brain are permanent. You can't change how alcohol and other drugs feel for you. That's not a choice. Maternal separation is a model of early trauma in animals, and studies have shown that this causes permanent changes to the opioid system in the brain. This type of trauma can heighten pain sensitivity in rats, lessen the pain-relieving effects of morphine, and intensify withdrawal from opioids. Rats that have been separated from their mothers as babies will self-administer more morphine in adulthood, and they also have a stronger place preference, meaning they will hang out in areas where they were given morphine, so they form a strong association between place and the reward. These rats will also show a slower extinction of condition place preference, meaning that even when they don't get morphine anymore, they stay in the place hoping that they will get it much longer than other rats do. So eventually most rats would give up and say, okay, well, I guess this isn't going to happen anymore. But rats who have been separated from their mothers as babies will stick to that place hoping that the morphine will come back for much, much longer than other rats. One 2021 study published in Addiction Biology looked at the impact of childhood trauma on morphine and pain. 
they had a group who experienced childhood trauma and a control group who did not. And it's really important to note that none of the people participating in this study struggled with addiction. So what they found was that the participants with childhood trauma liked morphine more than the group who did not have trauma. And they also wanted more of the drug than the control group. They also found that the control group disliked the effects of morphine towards the end of the session and experienced more negative side effects like nausea and dizziness. Morphine increased pain threshold for both groups equally, but the trauma group catastrophized their pain more than the control group did. So they made a much bigger deal out of the same pain. Overall, the trauma group had more depression, anxiety, stress, loneliness, lower perceived social support, and less self-compassion than the control group. Feelings of euphoria were also different. The trauma group felt much more pleasure overall and felt high when the drug was at its peak. Euphoria in the control group was low and did not differ from the very low dose sessions. The active dose of morphine in the study was 0.15 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And the very low dose, also called the negligible control dose, was 0.01 mg per kg. So basically nothing. So the researchers concluded that people with a history of childhood abuse and neglect would find the drug more pleasurable and rewarding. And this kind of relationship doesn't just exist for morphine. A 2014 study from psychopharmacology found a similar pattern with amphetamines. Since they didn't observe any difference in pain threshold between the two groups, the researchers could not conclude that the trauma group feeling more pleasure from morphine was due to changes to the opioid system in the brain. Instead, they suggest that since this relationship has been found with other drugs, permanent changes to the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA axis from chronic stress in childhood could affect a person's subjective response to drugs, meaning how good they think the drug is. We talked about the HPA axis a lot back in episode 67 when we talked about cortisol. So if you haven't listened to that yet, make sure to check it out after this episode. And in that episode, we also talked about how that system changes and can lead to struggles with alcohol. One 2013 study published in neuroscience found that rats exposed to early life stress had higher levels of blood corticosterone which is the rodent form of cortisol. So it's their version of cortisol. So these rats also drink more alcohol. And the idea is that the higher levels of corticosterone are interacting with dopamine to promote drinking more alcohol. Dopamine interacts with the HPA axis in response to a severe stressor. So this makes sense that they would drink more because trauma is associated with hypervigilance and being prepared for a threat. So drugs and alcohol are more rewarding because they give us relief from this overwhelmed state and allow us to relax. The lead author of the 2021 study about morphine said, when a baby cries and is comforted, endorphins are released. So if loving interactions like this don't happen, this system may develop differently and could become more sensitive to the rewarding effects of opioid drugs. 
Our study also highlights the importance of interventions aimed at high-risk children and adolescents to protect against opioid use. So with childhood trauma, you're not receiving the love and safe interactions that you should be. So the theory is that it causes the opioid system in the brain to develop differently, which makes the person more vulnerable to addiction. I thought that this was a really cool study because I've had morphine before and I thought that it was the best thing ever. When I was in my early 20s, I had constant UTIs and a few of them developed into kidney infections. And the first time I ever had a kidney infection, I was seriously sick. I was very nauseous, in pain, and even after drinking tons and tons of water, just could not go to the bathroom. My husband, who was only my boyfriend at the time, took me to the ER, and because I was in so much pain, they gave me morphine. It was 3 a.m., and as soon as it hit me, I was relaxed and I felt amazing. I had a big smile on my face, and I told my husband that I had become one with the hospital bed. He was miserable because he was sitting in the hospital at 3 a.m., But I was really enjoying myself all of a sudden. I didn't care about my sickness. I just felt great. So my purpose is to show you that addiction is not a choice. And we all have different factors in our lives that either increase or decrease our risk of having a problem. So I think one of the easiest ways to understand this is that drugs and alcohol do not feel the same for everyone. The participants in this study that did not experience childhood trauma felt nauseous and dizzy when they had morphine and felt no pleasure even when given a high dose. But the people who had trauma felt euphoria and wanted more morphine. If the substance feels amazing for you, then you are way more likely to develop a problem with it. That time I had morphine in the hospital was my first and only experience with opioids. But if my circumstances had been different as a teen and opioids were more accessible to me, then who knows what would have happened. So even though being bullied and having no friends for middle and high school was a traumatic and horrible experience for me, it did protect me from a lot. I didn't drink or use drugs because I wasn't invited to parties and I never hung out with anyone. So I've never really had the opportunity to use drugs. I'm sure if I was very curious, I could have found a way, but not having the opportunity really decreases my risk for becoming addicted to drugs. And even though this study was about morphine, you can apply this information to alcohol too. We learned back in episode 11 that alcohol doesn't feel the same for everyone and why, but this is the first time that I've read about trauma changing the way that drugs feel. Episode 11 is one of my all-time favorite episodes of the podcast. I mention it a lot. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, then please check it out after this. In that episode, I talk about a study that looked at pet imaging of heavy drinkers versus light drinkers when they consumed alcohol. So they found that the heavy drinkers had a greater feeling of pleasure when they drank. And what they saw from their scans is they also had a lot more endorphins released in the brain when they drank. I could never understand why people would leave any alcohol behind in their glass. And learning about this was life-changing for me. 
It's not that they have more self-control than I do. It's that alcohol doesn't feel like the best thing that's ever existed for them. So it's not a big deal to leave half a beer behind. And this is one reason why we can never become take it or leave it drinkers. Alcohol and other drugs feel amazing for us, way better than they do for most people. And because of that, we are way more likely to drink or use to excess. Just think of what the term take it or leave it means. It means you don't really care either way. Either you have it or you don't, but it doesn't matter. If alcohol is the most pleasurable thing in the world for you, then you're always going to care if you have it or not. People who can take it or leave it are that way because alcohol just feels fine for them. They don't experience the extreme amounts of pleasure that we do. I hope this episode was interesting for you. Thank you so much for bearing with me with my sick voice. I promise it will be back to normal for next week's episode. And I'll talk to you next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.